0: Of these two disciples on the way to Emmaus from Jerusalem. They have no certainty about the resurrection of Jesus. To them, in their thinking, it's a rumor. It's an idea that's floating out there, but, but they have no certainty about it. It's like, well, maybe it happened. Maybe it didn't. I don't really know. Some people say it happened. Some people say it didn't. You know, it's really not meshing for me. I can't say it with confidence. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. It was out there and filled with doubt. And so what did Jesus say to them starting at verse 25? Now, let me tell you something. I'm going to read to you a make-believe Bible version starting at verse 25. Let's say a very modern translation, okay? Uh, I'm saying if the Bible were written with modern ways of thought. This is what verse 25 would say. And Jesus said to them, embrace the ambiguity, brothers, (laughs) because your doubt is really good. You know, just get in touch with the complexity of all. And and who really needs to have answers? What's important is that you have good questions. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, is that anything like what Jesus said to them in verse 25? I think you can tell I'm a little bit animated about this. Because it just gets under my skin. That somehow people think... Now, I'm not saying this is an absolute thing. And there are certainly things... Let's say on the periphery of Christian experience and knowledge where there is some ambiguity that we embrace and we understand we don't need every aspect of it spelled out to us. But ladies and gentlemen, I tell you without apology, if there's somebody here tonight that doubts whether or not Jesus Christ is the son of God and he's risen from the dead, Jesus did not want you to doubt that. He wants you to have a full assurance of faith. Look at what he said to these doubting disciples in this situation. Verse 25. Then he said to them, "O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Jesus didn't praise them for their failure to believe the reports of his resurrection. What did he call them? Foolish ones. Guys, you have a reliable eyewitness report right there in front of you, and you're foolish not to believe it. Not only is it an eyewitness report right in front of you, but it is utterly consistent with what the scriptures have revealed. You should have believed it. Notice, he said to them that they were slow of heart to believe. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Because many people, when they claim that they don't believe, they want to act like the problems in their head. Sometimes that's a situation. But wouldn't you say something like eight times out of ten or nine times out of ten, the real problem is that they're slow of heart to believe. That's where the slowness is. It's not an intellectual problem. It's a heart problem. And Jesus might say to many people, you're slow of heart to believe. Believe, I've given you more than enough evidence. Believe on me as the risen son of God. And then he said in verse 26, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. They should have believed all what the prophets had spoken because that's what they said. You were slow of heart to believe verse 25 in all the prophets had spoken. It was spelled out to you in the prophets if you only would have understood it. So here were these two disciples. Listen, these guys weren't named disciples. These were Peter, James, and John or all the rest of them. No, these were common, simple men, but they had lost hope and they had lost joy. Jesus looked at me and said, why are you guys so sad? They had lost hope. They had lost joy. Now, they had not lost desire. What I love about these guys, and it's in the section we took a look at last week, and I read just a portion of it. They still like to talk about Jesus. Jesus. But they had no confidence that he was the risen son of God. And this is what they had not seen. Notice it. I'm going to read verses 25 and 26 again. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter in his glory? In other words, ought not have you understood that this is what the scriptures say, that the Christ, the Messiah, would suffer and then enter into his glory. That it was a necessity that the Christ would suffer. Friends, let me be very straightforward with you. The Old Testament has a mixed bag of prophecies about the Messiah. Many, I might even say most of the prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament are prophecies about his triumph and his glory and his lordship over all the world. And it would be very easy to take that first reading of the Old Testament and just say, oh, well, look, we'll know that the Messiah is here because everything's going to be glorious and his reign will be like a reign of glory. We get that. But what that ignores is that there is also a substantial number of clear prophecies in the Old Testament that tell us that the Messiah must suffer. Must. The prophets spoke this, for example, in Isaiah 53, verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. That speaks of the suffering that the Messiah must endure. Or how about this from Isaiah chapter 50 verses 5, 6 and 7. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and I know that I will not be ashamed. Or Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, where it says this of the Messiah, that the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Or in Zechariah chapter 12, it's another example in verse 10, where it says this. They will look upon me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. This is what Jesus challenged these two disciples with. Man, you know the Hebrew scriptures. You understand them. And you have focused only on these prophecies about the Messiah's glory. You have failed to understand that there are also important and meaningful prophecies about the Messiah's suffering and indeed even his crucifixion. Then Jesus did something remarkable. Look at verse 27. It says this. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. This may qualify for the greatest Bible study that was ever taught on the face of the earth. Here's Jesus walking with two men. And first he rebukes them. He did. You can't deny that's a rebuke. Oh, foolish one, slow of heart to believe. That's a rebuke. But then he says, guys, I'm not just here to rebuke you. I'm not just here to bag you. I want to teach you. Let me teach you. Let me teach you all through the Hebrew scriptures. I'm going to begin with what Moses wrote, and I'm going to carry it through all the way through the prophets, and I'm going to talk to you about how they speak of me. Now, isn't this amazing? That Jesus, in his resurrected glory, goes back to the scriptures that he had learned from his mother on his mother's knee. In no way did he feel he was past them. He says, guys, let me give you a Bible study. Let me tell you a few things. Let me show you that the Messiah is the seed of the woman whose heel was bruised. The Messiah is the blessing of Abraham to all nations. The Messiah is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The Messiah is the man who wrestled with Jacob. The Messiah is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The Messiah is the voice of the burning bush. The Messiah is the Passover lamb. He's the prophet greater than Moses. He's the captain of the Lord's army speaking to Joshua. That the Messiah is the ultimate kinsman redeemer mentioned in Ruth. He's the son of David, who was a king greater than David. He's the suffering savior. Of Psalm 22. He's the good shepherd of Psalm 23. He's the wisdom in the book of Proverbs, and he's the lover in the Song of Solomon. He's the savior described in the prophets, and the suffering servant described in Isaiah 53. And he's the princely messiah of the book of Daniel who would establish a kingdom that would never end. And he went on and on and on. Now, you want to know something that's beautiful about this? If you look at verse 27, it uses a very interesting phrase. It says he expounded to them in all the scriptures. This describes how Jesus taught them. He simply expounded and let the text speak for himself. That is exactly what a good Bible teacher should try to do. Expound the scriptures. Matter of fact, that word is fascinating. And I won't bore you with the exact pronunciation of the ancient Greek word. But the ancient Greek word that's translated expounded there, it really has the idea of sticking close to the text. So much so that another place where Luke uses that same ancient Greek word is in the book of Acts chapter 9 verse 36. And you know how it's expressed? It's expressed with the English word translated That's sticking very close to the text, don't you think? In other words, please understand this. When Jesus taught them this Bible study, when he explained the things concerning himself in the Old Testament, he didn't use fanciful allegories or speculative ideas. He expounded, which meant that he kept very close to the text. And he said, you have every reason to believe. Now, you know what's thrilling about this? In verse... 27, when that ends, and when verse 28 begins, they still don't know who they're walking with. Isn't that great? They still don't know. Now, we're going to find out later that their hearts were burning within them. There was something in them so responsive to the truth of God that it was like a fire burning in their hearts. There was something burning. Now, They didn't know that the other heart was burning while it was happening. They talked about it after the fact. But when Jesus was speaking to them and they heard him teach, there was some flaming heart fellowship with Jesus happening even as he spoke. Now let's go on to verse 28 where it says this. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it's toward evening and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. So there they're walking to their destination there at Emmaus, and you know, Jesus is making like he's going to go on further. Well, guys, I'll see you, you know, have a great No! You just taught us the most amazing thing we've ever heard in our life. You're you're staying with us. Matter of fact, where it says right there that they constrained him, it shows that it's a very strong word when Jesus taught and he said that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. It's the same ancient Greek word they they were almost. No, you're staying with us. It's like they they grabbed his arm and pulled him back. Not a step further, mysterious stranger. You're coming in and at least you're going to eat and maybe spend the night in our home. They constrained him. So what did they do? Verse 30. Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, blessed and broke it and he gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they knew him. And he vanished from their sight. (laughs) And he said to them, or they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road? And while he opened the scriptures to us? My Friends, this is amazing. Just beautiful. Okay, let's get the scene here. There they are. They're inside this humble hut. They're not in a fancy Palace, or a synagogue, or a temple. There they are, just in a humble man's home. And then Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it. Now, you and I, our minds immediately go toward the Last Supper when we read that, don't they? Come on, admit it. Your mind immediately go. This is how they figured it out. Yes. It's the Lord's Supper, it's communion, it's the body, it's the, it's the, the cup, it's yes. This is. Can I just remind you of something? These men were not present at the Last Supper. They weren't present. They, they didn't have a clue about the institution of the Last Supper. So I, I think it's wrong for us to see in that moment any sacramental context to it whatsoever. Now, if you want to say in a bigger meaning, in an allegory, we look back on it, whatever. Okay, fine. But at that moment, they had nothing to connect it with because these men were not there at the Last Supper. They had no clue about it. Nevertheless, there was something about the way that Jesus broke the bread and blessed it. It's really interesting because it says there in verse 31, very plainly. Look at it there. It says. Then their eyes were opened and they knew him. Though it was not what we might call a sacramental meal, strictly speaking, there was something in it that showed them who this mysterious and wise guest was. Before their eyes were restrained. That's in verse 16 of the same chapter. But now their eyes were opened. And he was, if you look down at verse 35, it says he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now, what was it? Well, the scriptures don't tell us directly, do they? But we can't resist speculating just a little bit, can we? Or maybe I'll just speak for myself. And one writer that I've appreciated going through the Gospel of Luke with, his name is Morrison. He suggested several ways that they might have recognized Jesus in the breaking of the bread. First of all... Isn't it interesting that he is breaking the bread and blessing it? He immediately took the place of the host. It's not his house. It's not his bread. It's not his table. But there's just something about the quiet authority of Jesus that when you sit down to the table with Jesus, it's like, well, he's the host. And maybe there was something to that. Maybe, maybe it was the way that he gave the blessing over the meal that they were about to eat. Now, if these men had had prior association with Jesus and they had because they were disciples. Maybe they had heard him pray before. Maybe they and maybe there was just something in the voice, in the intonation in the vocabulary of prayer. Because, friends, don't you believe that there was something wonderful and amazing about the prayer life of Jesus? That there was that if wouldn't you have loved to hear Jesus pray? Now, I I know we can read passages of scripture such as John 17, that amazing high priestly prayer of Jesus. And we're just like, we feel like we should take off our shoes that we're on holy ground when we read that. But could you imagine hearing those words from his voice with all the inflection, with all the nuance that the human voice can? That may very well. It was when he prayed over the food or or it could have been this. That when he broke the bread and passed it one to another, suddenly they noticed his hands. And they noticed something they never noticed before. That there were very visible wounds in his hands. Or friends, could not it have just been supernatural revelation? That for whatever God's purposes, for a while, the switch was off. And God said, I'm not going to allow you to see it. And now the switch was on. And God said, now I'm going to make it where you can't miss it. Who knows? It could have just been that. But there was something in that moment. And this is what I want you to understand. Isn't it significant that it's true that Jesus can be right beside you? Right in front of you. Jesus can be speaking to you. Jesus can be showing you truth from his word. And it is possible that at that moment you don't perceive it. Doesn't this make us say we must have soft and prayerful hearts before the Lord? Lord, how how awful it would be if you drew so wonderfully close to me and I missed it. And it makes me wonder, it makes me wonder if if the times I've prayed, oh, Lord, where are you? If God wouldn't answer back on, I'm right here. The problem isn't with me. It's with your perception, David. Anyway, it's really a remarkable occurrence that he was right there and it was only then that they understood it. And then you saw what it says in verse 31. I mean, this is what raised left. He vanished from their sight. As soon as their eyes were open who Jesus was, he miraculously left them and they both said what was on their hearts. They both immediately said, verse 32, did not our heart burn within us while he talked? You know, when that man taught us, when we were walking on the way, my heart was burning in fellowship with God and with an understanding of the truth. It wasn't just words. It wasn't just food for my intellect. There was something about it that fed my soul and set my heart upon fire. Now, I want you to notice this. Even when they didn't know that it was Jesus speaking, even when they didn't believe that he was risen from the dead, their hearts still burned because of the ministry of God's word. And that's what I long for. You all know, I mean, this coming Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Sometimes we call it Easter. It's going to be together there at the Sunken Gardens. And we're going to talk to a lot of people about Jesus. And here's what I'm going to pray. This is what I'm going to hope. That people who don't even know it's Jesus. And people who aren't even persuaded that he's risen again. That their hearts would burn within them. By the power of his word speaking to them. And that through that they would come to know Jesus and believe that he is the son of God, risen from the dead. Here's the other thing I want you to understand. None of them knew that the other's heart was burning until Jesus left and they talked about it. Isn't it strange that sometimes we think that our spiritual experience is so singular Oh man, my heart's burning at this. God is speaking to me so powerfully. Yeah, the lunkhead next to me, I'm sure he's not getting anything from this. But oh Lord, you're really speaking to me. And you know what? It's amazing what God can be doing in the other person too. This is why, friends, this is one of the reasons why it is good to talk about what God is speaking to our hearts. It is good for us to share it with other people. Did not great benefit come from these men talking together about what the Lord was speaking to their hearts? And it is good for us to do the same thing as well. So what did they do? Verse 33. So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This was a mutual confirmation. We've heard it from the women. We heard it from Simon. We heard the reports. And now we have experienced it. And our hearts burned at the word of the living Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. And they told the story. Now, that same night. Now it must be getting on pretty late. That same night, Jesus appears to those disciples. Verse 36. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself handle me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And what's fascinating about this is we have a parallel account of the same incident in John chapter 20, starting at verse 19, going through to verse 25. And you know what it says in John chapter 20, verse 19? It says that Jesus appeared in the room suddenly, even though the doors were locked. Now, it doesn't exactly say that it was a miraculous appearance of Jesus, but it sure seems like it. I mean, it's hard to think of Jesus like crawling in through the window. (laughs) Or picking the lock, you know, with it. It seems, although, look, I'm going to be honest with you. The text doesn't exactly say it. And so I understand I'm going out a little bit on a limb here. but, But I think it's a valid supposition to say that Jesus miraculously appeared in the midst. Just as much as it seems that he miraculously disappeared from the table of the disciples in Emmaus. My friends, you understand that it seems that the resurrection body of Jesus had certain principles and properties connected with it that far surpass our physical bodies. Now, first of all, does this surprise anybody? Does anybody expect that our physical bodies in the resurrection are going to be just the same as these physical bodies right now? Please, Jesus, no. I'm looking for some kind of upgrade from this Lord, <laughs> some kind of upgrade, please. And it would seem that at least in a way, and, and look, I, I understand that there's a sense. And right now I'm speaking a little bit of foolishness. I'm not a scientist. And even if I were, I think the things that I'm talking about right now are beyond scientific exploration and discovery. But it would seem That the resurrection body of Jesus was not bound to the law of physics as we understand it. That he could pass through material walls and he could appear and disappear at will. That he could be at one place and then very quickly be at another place. And this may very well be the same properties of our bodies, of our bodies in the resurrection. It's a fascinating thought in any regard. Jesus is there right there in the midst. And notice what he says there. I want to focus on what he says there in verse 39. He says, behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Jesus first displayed his wounded hands and feet to the disciples. He wanted to do two things. First of all, he wanted to establish his identity to them. It's me. It's not an imposter. It's not Barabbas. It's not some other false Christ. It's me. I have the wounds. So it was a form of identification, number one. But then secondly, he wanted them to know with certainty that his body was for real. That it was not a phantom. Feel, pinch, press. This is real flesh and bone. Now, one thing that's fascinating about this is that I want you to understand that the disciples were not in a place where they were so quick to believe that they fantasized that Jesus was really risen from the dead. Do you understand that the disciples had to be persuaded? That Jesus appeared in their midst and their immediate reaction was, no, it's not him. Jesus said, no, I have to prove it to you. Touch me. I will prove it to you. The, the, these men were not just filled with this sort of strange, easy believism. No, they had to be persuaded to believe. And that's why Jesus said in verse 39 handle me and see. I have a real physical body. It's of a different order than the bodies that we have now, but I'm not a ghost, I'm not a phantom. And he says this in verse 39. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. It's very interesting. Some people make much of the idea that Jesus did not speak in the normal way that we speak of saying flesh and blood. That, that's normally that phrase is used many times in the Bible. Flesh and blood, flesh and blood, flesh and blood. What did Jesus say in verse 39? Flesh and bone. Now, some people who say, and this is Speculative. Let's face it, anytime we're talking about the resurrection and life, we're we're, we're speculating a little bit here. There are people who believe that the resurrection body of Jesus did not have blood in it. But rather it was a different material composition. It lived on a different principle. It would not age. It was not answering to the normal biological processes that we understand. And say, no, he didn't say flesh and blood. He said flesh and bone. Now, it may be that Jesus said flesh and bone, not to indicate that, but just to indicate this, that if you feel somebody's arm, you can't feel that there's blood there. But you can feel that there's flesh and you can feel that there's bone. Maybe that's why he said it. So it's possible that it's making too much of something. simple. But it is interesting that Jesus did not say flesh and blood. He said flesh and bone. Notice this as well that it says, starting here at verse 41, but while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. He's just eating healthy there. And he took it and ate it in their presence. Look at that in verse 41. Curiously, it says, They still did not believe for joy and marveled. I see two things in this. It may very well be that the idea here is that they did not believe because in their minds and in their heart, it was too good to be true. And are there not some people who reject the gospel and they reject the work of Jesus Christ? It's too good to be true. They will not believe because of joy. No, it can't be that great. Yes, it is that great. But here's something else. Jesus also wanted their faith to be intelligent. A reasoned faith. Guys, I just don't want you to get excited about the fact that I'm risen before you. I want you to intelligently believe. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. I want you to make a calculated understanding. He is risen from the dead. It's real. It's not a phantom. It's not a ghost. It's not a figment of my imagination. He wanted them to think And believe. Listen, it was just a short time ago that there was a tidal wave of grief over them. Now it's like a tidal wave of joy. And Jesus didn't want their faith to be destroyed by the tidal wave of of grief. But nor did he want their faith to be established by the tidal wave of joy. He wanted it to be a reasoned faith that could celebrate the joy and endure the grief. But in this case, it says they did not believe for joy. And marvel in the verse 41, that great line Have you any food here? It's as if this Jesus said, I'm going to prove to you that I'm the same Jesus, that I have a real body. Watch me eat. I can only imagine what an awkward scene that was and how curiously the disciples looked at him to see what would happen to the food that he put in. You know, would it like fall to the floor or something? Is he a phantom? What's going to happen? And Jesus is looking back at them and going, yeah, pretty good fish. Who caught this? It, it was a remarkable, a remarkable occurrence. By the way, isn't it interesting how often Jesus ate with his resurrected in his, in his resurrection body with his disciples. We've seen two occurrences already. He broke bread in Emmaus, and now he's eating fish. It's two meals in one night. Jesus liked to eat in his resurrection body. I think we see something wonderful in that, don't we? Now, by the way, would this not be another powerful evidence that this was the same Jesus? These men had shared many, many meals with Jesus. And don't you really get to know somebody? And I don't mean this in a strange way, but you get to know them in good ways and bad ways. I mean, sometimes people have curious habits in the way that they eat. But you just, when, you, when you're there with somebody and eat a lot of meals with them, there's just idiosyncrasies. There's habits. There's things that you pick up. And it would all, it would all flood back to them. We've ate hundreds of meals with this man. It's him. It's him. I know We shared a taco together, whatever it was. Fish taco in this case, wouldn't it be? (laughs) Verse 44. And he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that he might, that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Friends, this is remarkable. Look at what it says in verse 44. He said, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. And then verse 45, he opened their understandings that they might comprehend the scriptures. And he explained to them again from the scriptures. Now, friends, this astounds me. I don't know why I've seen it more clearly in this study than I've seen it before. But the risen Jesus had Bible studies with his disciples. Two in one night right here a long walk to Emmaus. And now here he is in Jerusalem with the disciples and they open up the scriptures. Now, you know what I find amazing about that? The physical risen Jesus was right in front of them. If there was ever a time to say, men, let's close our Bibles and just enjoy my presence. Wouldn't you think that would be the time? Guys, just, just, just hear me. Just feel me. Just, just, just get the vibe for my presence. Just that. Close your Bibles and let's... But no, the risen Jesus said, I am right here next to you in my physical presence. Open your Bibles and I'm going to meet you in them. I'm going to meet you in the word, even when I'm right here physically with you. I guess the reason why I say it, and why it's so prominent to me. Is there are people today, <laughs> there are people today who think that the problem with the church is too much Bible study. Too much focus on the word of God. Now, I will say this. I will say this. There is a problem of the wrong kind of Bible study. There is a problem with a merely academic or a merely intellectual. There is a problem with study of the Bible that just makes hearers without being doers. And if that's what a person means when they're talking about that, then I agree. That's a problem. But isn't it amazing to see that if there was any place where Jesus should have said, forget about the Bible study, just enjoy my presence. Instead, he said, let's talk about the scriptures. I want to teach you guys a Bible study. It blows my mind. Well, notice this. He explained to them, verse 46, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And then he gave them the solemn charge in verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. Now to finish up, and I know we're running just a little bit late, but this is the last study in Luke. I pretty much go as long as I want. I have the feeling I could do. Verse 49. Verse 49. Behold, I send the promise of my father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up to heaven and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God and praising and blessing God. Amen. All right, two things I want you to grab from this. First of all, look at the posture of Jesus as he ascended to heaven. Do you see what it says there? Where is it? It's right there in verse 50. He lifted up his hands and blessed them. And verse 51, while he blessed them, he was carried up to heaven. Do, do you see how significant that is? There's Jesus literally with his hands upraised blessing his people. And he is literally in that same posture, just as the priests would stand before the people and bless them in the name of the Lord at the great feast or at the temple service. Now, usually when the priests did it, their clothing was bloody from all the sacrifice they just offered. And that gave them the right to do it. But you know what? Jesus put away all that sacrifice by his perfect sacrifice on the cross. So he, in utterly clean vestments, he raises his hands in blessing over his people. And friends, can you just receive it? That when Jesus ascended to heaven, he was literally blessing his people as he went up and passed from their sight. He is still in heaven today blessing you. He has given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you want to picture him that way, he still has his hands upraised over his people, praying for them and blessing them. And there's power in that. I like what Spurgeon said. He said this, if he has blessed you, you shall be blessed for there is no power in heaven or earth or hell that can reverse the blessing which he gives. Amen to that. Jesus blessed his church ascending to heaven. Next, and perhaps finally, I want you to see the wisdom of the ascension. There really was wisdom in Jesus' Jesus's ascension into heaven. He had to leave earth in this way to demonstrate my physical presence is leaving this earth and it's not coming back until I return in glory. Think of how weird it would have been if the reports of Jesus's appearance in his resurrection body would have just kind of petered out over 20 years. Is he here? Is he not here? We don't really know. We thought there was a Jesus sighting there. Maybe not I G. I don't know. We don't really get it. No, Jesus. I don't want anybody to do that. I want them to know that I am leaving this earth in a definitive act, blessing my church all along the way. And I am going to ascend into heaven and take my place at the right hand of God, the father on high. And this is the other reason why the ascension is important. And I'm going to do just what I promised and send forth the Holy Spirit. Because that's what Jesus said he would do. He said, when I ascend to heaven, I'm going to send down the Holy Spirit. And that's what he told his disciples to wait for. And that's what they did. They went back to Jerusalem. And 10 days later, the Holy Spirit came upon them in great power. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? Friends. What a blessed book the Gospel of Luke is. And I think we should just say, Thank you, Lord. We receive it. We receive the blessing that you bestow upon us, Jesus in our mind's eye, and we do this reverently, Lord. We we don't want to do it with even a touch of idolatry, but Lord, we picture you departing from the Mount of Olives, being carried up into heaven as the clouds come between you and your people until you go, go, and eventually vanish from sight. But all the while, there you were with your hands upraised, blessing your people. Jesus, we receive your blessing. We receive it, Lord, knowing that we don't deserve it, but that you are a God of grace and graciousness and you love to bestow this blessing upon your people. So, Lord, we receive it and we believe that there's power and authority in the blessing of Jesus. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for setting our hearts at least a bit of flame because of your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.